0: The uh, our, our last uh, presentation uh, is by J- J- Jim Pearson, and he's going to explain to us
1: why populism fails. Not exactly. I'll <laughs> okay. uh, Thank you, Roger. Delighted to be here again. Thank you. Uh, delighted to be here with our uh, British colleagues as well. Good to see them. Wish we could see them more than once a year. Sir John Harrington, poet and court aide to Elizabeth I, wrote, Treason does never prosper. What's the (coughs) reason? Why, if it does, none dare call it treason. Something similar might be said about modern-day populism. Populism never prospers. What's the reason? For for if it does, none dare call it populism. (laughs) Somewhat like treason, populism rarely succeeds, at least in modern constitutional systems. Though when it does, the impulse tends to recede as it is absorbed into one or another of the mainstream parties. That, in any case, is the historical pattern. Whether or not it holds true in the future is open to question. In an age of hyper-democracy, when every party or candidate claims to represent the people, it's not obvious why populism should bear a mark of opprobrium as threatening to established institutions or patterns of politics. After all, both democracy and populism are forms of popular rule democracy is good, then a purer, more direct form should be better. And there can be little doubt that populism, however defined, represents an unalloyed expression of popular feelings. Nevertheless, the view persists. Populism is a negative version of democracy. More than that, as many say, it is a threat to the liberal order itself. In the past, until relatively recent times, it was democracy that was viewed as the perverted form of popular rule an organized version of mob rule leading to disorder and eventually to tyranny. That was the view of Plato and Aristotle, of Cicero and the Romans, of James Madison and the American founders, of Locke, Burke, Tocqueville and others, all of whom judged republicanism to be the legitimate version of popular rule and democracy the perverted version. Through a declension of terminology, republicanism has given way to democracy and it seems democracy in turn to populism. Along the way, the deeper reasons behind these old-time distinctions have been lost. If we are all Democrats now, it's not so obvious why populism should be judged such a bad thing. In the last two years, the term populism has been thrown about in the U.S. and Europe with greater frequency than at any time in recent memory. The The vote in Great Britain last year to leave the European Union was deemed a populist revolt against the establishment. Though, just as an aside, I still regard that as something of an anomaly because referenda are not typical aspects of British politics. This was an unusual event, Uh, an up or down vote on a very large question, uh, the kind of thing that is not uh, typically brought before the uh, British voters. In the US, both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders were called populists, and in Trump's case, the label was proudly advertised. His victory in the election ensures that populism will not soon go away either as a political movement or a topic of analysis. Insurgent populist parties have challenged established parties in both France and Germany in elections in 2017 with a fair amount of success. Gert Wilders leads a populist-type party in the Dutch House of Representatives, and Mr. Wilders collaborated with Marine Le Pen in France to form a multinational populist party in the European Parliament. Viktor Orbán leads a populist party in Hungary. The list of so-called populist movements and populist leaders in the West could go on and will probably be added to in the years ahead. Donald Trump, however, is the only one to win high national office thus far. There is surprisingly little agreement among observers as to what these movements have in common, such that they all should march under the banner of populism. What is populism, anyway? There seem to be as many definitions of it as there are movements around the world. To complicate matters, some smuggle political biases into their definitions as a means of discrediting uh, the movement by definition. Some definitions are so broad as to fail to distinguish between populist movements and other democratic causes. This is true of the claim that populists appeal to the people against the establishment. A claim that is true with regard to populists but also true in regard to many other movements as well. Macron in France, Obama in the United States, two leaders not generally thought to be populist, uh, claim to represent the people against out-of-step establishments. This kind of language is common in common use in electoral contests in the United States and to some degree elsewhere. The people versus the elite, the people versus the establishment, whatever, these are the common currency of debate and opposition in democratic politics. Populists use this terminology, but so do others. Other definitions are too narrow or wrong in regard to existing evidence. This is so with regard to claims that populists are bigots, racists, or xenophobes. While some undoubtedly are, survey evidence does not confirm such views characterize supporters as a whole or animate them into political action. The claim that populist movements are fueled by anger or frustration implies that voters and supporters are merely throwing a tantrum which confirms their view that establishment figures uh, making the claim are out of touch. Such definitions seem more designed to uh, discredit populism than to understand it. There's also the common sense claim that populism is a movement that draws support from those who are down on their luck from an economic point of view. However, the actual evidence supporting this claim is surprisingly thin. In the United States election, Donald Trump did much better than Mrs. Clinton among white voters with a high school education or less, a statistic that has been cited to support the idea that Trump's voters were generally downwardly mobile. Yet post-election surveys did not show that Trump's voters were more likely than Clinton's to be unemployed or out of the workforce. Mrs. Clinton ran well ahead of Trump among voters who rated the economy as the most important issue. Trump won the bulk of his support in the primaries and the general among very conservative voters and among those who judge terrorism and immigration to be the most important issues facing the country. Many of Trump's voters, perhaps like Mrs. Clinton's, were concerned about the economy, as they said to pollsters, but they did not appear to vote on the basis of personal circumstances, but rather out of worries about the direction of the nation as a whole. If populism is a movement born out of economic dislocation and anger, then the survey evidence does not bear out the claim. Then there is a claim that populist movements appeal to anti-democratic or authoritarian elements in the electorate, another another of those efforts designed to discredit populism by definition. This kind of argument has been made in regard to Trump's voters in the U.S. and Brexit voters in Great Britain. Yet once again, it is a claim with little evidence to back it up. The Journal of Democracy published an article earlier this year demonstrating on the basis of national surveys that support for democratic institutions is declining in all Western democracies, including the U.S. and Great Britain. But surprisingly, the decline in support for democracy in these surveys is sharpest among the youngest cohorts born during the 1980s, precisely those in the U.S. most inclined to Mrs. Clinton and in Great Britain against Brexit. Uh, Jan Werner Mueller in a new book titled, What Is Populism?, argues that the distinguishing feature of populist movements is their opposition to pluralism and diversity. This is so in his view because populist leaders claim to represent the people against various interests that divide the polity and render it incapable, incapable of accomplishing anything. Populist campaigns tend not to be coalitional in nature. Indeed, populists reject coalitional politics as a feature of of pluralistic politics that divides the people. As he argues, populism is a moral claim, not a narrowly political or policy argument about which members of the public uh, actually represents the polity. It is in in this sense he argues that populism is a threat to democratic norms. Uh, Mueller makes a good case, but he ignores the fact that contemporary democracies, the U.S. especially, are awash in movements, mainly on the left, that seek to shut down pluralistic debate. It would be redundant to cite the many cases of progressives of one kind or another who have tried to shut down alternative views on college campuses or in the public square. Trump and Brexit voters, at least, have not tried to do anything like that and few in any case are in positions where they have the power or the authority to to suppress opposing views. It was in fact Trump in the election who attacked political correctness as one of his central campaign themes, and it was Mrs. Clinton who called Trump's supporters deplorables and questioned the legitimacy of their views, hardly an endorsement of pluralism. Trump and his voters, like those who voted for Brexit in Great Britain, seem to have been worried less about pluralism and more about a constellation of other issues, national identity, national sovereignty, and the feared consequences of unfettered immigration. There's also the fact that Trump's vote corresponded very closely with Mitt Romney's national vote and John McCain's vote in 2008, and with the vote of previous Republican candidates going all the way back to 1980. All three recent candidates claimed between 46 and 48% of the national vote, with a great deal of overlap among them. If Trump's voters were deplorables, then also were Romney's and McCain's, a claim that few have tried to make. Trump managed to consolidate the traditional Republican vote while adding to that a small share of the Democratic vote in a few northern states. A small but possibly decisive share of Trump voters have previously voted for Obama, fact that discredits the claim that Trump won the election by appealing to racial anxieties. After eight years of Democratic administration, voters yearn for a change in national direction. In these ways, then, the facts cut against the more extreme claims that Trump's election heralds a victory of the dark (coughs) forces of bigotry in American life and thus a radical departure from past trends. There is more continuity in the election than was apparent in the press coverage and official narratives, due to an obsession in the press with some of Trump's more extreme comments and an unexamined belief in Mrs. Clinton's inevitable victory. When that did not materialize, there's a tendency to emphasize the disruptive aspects of Trump's candidacy. She is supposed to win and thus it was reasonable to think that (coughs) some kind of cataclysm had occurred to prevent it. If these claims about populism are wrong or incomplete, then what can we say in a general way to to describe populist type movements active in the world today and in the past? Here's a set of generalizations uh, in an attempt to answer that question. (coughs) One, populism is an authentic aspect of democratic politics that has surged and receded in in response to circumstances since the creation of modern systems in the 18th century. Populism typically involves a campaign uh, to organize the people against an elite or an establishment said to be manipulating the system in its own interest. This kind of impulse seems to be built into liberal representative systems in which a line is drawn between government and the people it represents. The contest between the court and country parties in Britain in the 18th century had some of these elements as did Jefferson's campaign against Hamilton and the Federalists in the United States. Populist movements that developed thereafter in the U.S. replicated Jefferson's imagery. Among them, Jackson's Democrats, the abolitionists, the original Populist Party in the 1890s, Uh, Huey Long's followers in the 1930s, Senator McCarthy, George Wallace's campaigns in the 60s, Ross Perot's campaign in 1992, Buchanan's in 96, (coughs) and now Donald Trump's in 2016. Uh, Two, populist movements are protest movements, identified more by what they are against than by what they are for. In this way, populist movements differ from party or candidate campaigns with their lists of policy proposals drawn up by experts and interest groups. For the same reason, populist movements are built around identifiable leaders rather than around teams of politicians and policy experts. Uh, Three, populist movements typically arise outside the established party system in the form of third or fourth parties, that's the case in Europe and especially in parliamentary systems, or seek to capture one or another of the established parties if that path is not possible. In Europe, populism is typically expressed through new parties. In the United States, Jefferson and Jackson created new parties. The primary system in the United States allows populist candidates to capture the established parties at least on a temporary basis. Williams Jennings Bryan captured the Democratic Party in 1896 on behalf of the populists but failed to win an election. George Wallace and Ross Perot tried and failed to capture the Democratic and Republican parties. Donald Trump captured the Republican Party through this avenue and won the presidential election the first populace since Jackson to succeed in that quest. Just just as an aside, I'd say that George Wallace in 1972 was on his way to capturing the Democratic nomination when he was shot in May of 1972. He swept through the northern primaries in reaction to uh, the issues of crime and school busing. Now, uh, George McGovern had written the rules for delegate selection leading up to that campaign. And McGovern had gotten a a substantial minority of the primary vote up to that time, but due to his knowledge of the delegate selection process, they captured a majority of the delegates. i only point this out to uh, uh, provide an example of the inherent weaknesses of populist candidates in terms of manipulating the rules in their favor. Uh, Number four, far from posing a threat to democratic institutions, populist movements often serve the important purpose of bringing issues to the fore that major parties fail to address or cannot address. Though populist candidates may not succeed in winning offices, uh, the voters they mobilize are often absorbed into one of the major parties. George Wallace raised issues of crime and busing in the 60s and 70s and succeeded in part when his voters were absorbed into the Republican Party. Ross Perot raised the issues of debt and deficit spending in the 1990s and those were also absorbed into the system, most remarkably when President Clinton announced in 1997 that the era of big government is over. Uh, Five, populist movements in the current era, and especially in the United States, but I believe in Europe as well, arise from the right and not from the left. An indication that I take to mean that voters view the establishment as being liberal or leftist in character. All of the populist movements in America dating back to the 1930s have come from the right. Coughlin, McCarthy, Wallace, Perot, Buchanan, and Trump. All prominent figures outside the established parties. Most focused on national issues related to trade, immigration, national identity, patriotism, and the American role abroad. Bernie Sanders and George McGovern did not run populist campaigns, but issue campaigns designed to appeal to established groups within the Democratic Party. Six, populist movements, for a variety of reasons relating to their internal character, tend to fail or come up short in capturing office or sustaining their movements over the long haul. This was the case with all the movements mentioned above, though, as noted, several succeeded in raising issues that the major parties had to address. What are the main reasons for their failure? Several. Populist leaders do not build complex coalitions, a skill required in pluralistic systems. The public tends to view them as protest movements, not as governing campaigns. They lack policies to deal with the problems they identify. They do not have teams of allies to act as surrogates or spokesmen, or to represent them with voting groups. I would only say that when Ronald Reagan and others got elected to office, they had elaborate teams of experts and allies recruited from think tanks and all over the place to fill the offices when they came into power. As we see, Donald Trump has not had that. Uh, He's had difficulty filling uh, the the governmental offices uh, that presidents uh, have power over. Populists are not coalition builders. Their campaigns are haphazard and disorganized, revolving as they do around particular leaders. They lack experience in raising funds, dealing with the press and foreblading campaign strategies. Uh, They also have little experience in governing. I believe that uh, uh, very few presidents besides Donald Trump would have agreed to sit down in one-on-one meetings with the FBI director uh, investigating his administration. I think he would have been cautioned off that by his counselors and he probably would have known better than to engage in such a risky endeavor. To make matters worse, they typically deal with an adversarial press and a political establishment uh, working daily to bring them down or expose them (coughs) as frauds. Uh, Donald Trump is the first populist in the modern era to have overcome these obstacles to win national office. In winning last year's election, he not only beat the odds and surprised the pollsters, he accomplished something most people thought was impossible. How could a populist candidate with no experience in politics, no influential allies or policy experts, defeat a candidate well-experienced, well-armed with money, allies, expert, and a friendly press? Many of us are still trying to answer that question. A short answer is that he raised the national issue, a powerful message that unified enough voters to win the election and allowed him to dispense with the traditional tactics of coalitional politics. Trump's capture of the Republican nomination and victory in the general election came about through a revolt of the voters, not through a top-down campaign in which well-placed leaders selected the candidate and guided him through the campaign. It's in this sense that Trump is a genuine populist. Trump and the voters did it on their own, really the clearest sign that his campaign was a populist insurgency. Having won office, he faces large challenges, not only in governing and in addressing the issues he raised, but also in simply keeping his position against a hostile press and an establishment that wishes to nullify the election and drive him out. They may yet succeed. Uh, Having won election as a loner, Trump lacks lacks loyal allies in Congress. Uh, There will be Republicans here and there who will vote against his policy simply to make him fail uh, as I noted he must deal with a hostile government establishment which some call the deep state. He did not bring a team of office a team with him into office. Uh, so he faces all those challenges. Many uh, conservatives opposed Donald Trump during the election campaign because they said he is not a conservative and that in any case he is unfit temperamentally for the presidency. They were thus willing to roll the dice with Mrs. Clinton in the hope that a conservative to their liking might replace her. Uh, in uh, four or eight years, and that the nation would not be changed all that much in the interim. That was a risk many uh, conservatives were not willing to take, and thankfully, uh, a lot of voters are not willing to take. They regarded conservative opposition to Trump as more than a little utopian in nature, grounded in the belief that we deserve a near-perfect candidate. But in truth, leaving aside all the objections about Trump, about free markets, trade, and big government, He does in fact stand for the great conservative cause of the present era, namely the preservation of the traditional nation-state as a framework for our security, prosperity, and liberties. Judging by the statements and actions of leading progressive figures, including Obama and Clinton, they envision some kind of universal state in America with open borders, multiple languages, and cultures Citizenship open to anyone who can find a way here in a military and economic system designed to protect human rights around the globe. It's a concept that has been raised for a long time in modern life. Kant spoke about a universal state. Others have as well. That may still be where we are headed. There is great momentum behind that enterprise. But that enterprise will never work to secure the sacred advantages of national strength and freedom. Mr. Trump was elected to stem the momentum of that enterprise and to restore a sense of national energy and national belief in America. That sounds like a conservative agenda and indeed one that dwarfs in importance many of the alternatives that critics have raised. One could could cite a distinction between normal politics and regime politics. Normal politics is a fight over uh, the usual issues of taxation, regulation, and so on. There are no permanent losers there. Uh, The issues are constantly revisited and changed at the margin. Regime politics, in regime politics, there's a fight over the character of the regime itself. And there, in that circumstance, there are winners and losers. The losers go home. uh, And the winners go on to shape the regime. We've had two such episodes uh, since uh, the Constitution was ratified. That occurred in the 1850s and 1860s and in the 1930s and 1940s when the United States forged new kinds of regime and the losers went home and lost. Are we entering into that type of regime politics in the United States today? Has the politics of the post-war period uh, become exhausted the old arguments exhausted and out of date. Uh, the election of Donald Trump suggests that they may that may well be the case and that we are, must look forward or could look forward with a, some degree of trepidation to a great deal of instability, at least in American national politics in the years ahead. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
2: Thank you, uh, Jeremy? Well, I thought that was excellent and very interesting and I agree with a lot of what you said. I wonder if I could just though expand the data set a bit more. First of all, I think that there are actually quite a lot of populist movements from the left as well as the right. If you're looking at the world at the present moment, Podemos in, um, in uh, Spain or the Five Star in Italy or Syriza in Greece, And I suppose you could say Corbyn's takeover of the Labour Party in Britain. And I I, I think we've got to avoid the way in which left-wing commentators have, as it were, treated populism as a pathology of the right. It's a much more general sort of tension, as you say. I think you say very well within a democratic society. And the second point, um, I've got nothing uh, in order to limit President Trump's achievement of winning the election, but I'm not sure I would describe him as the only populist or the first populist to win um, a democratic mandate in the present world you you may have your own views on whether they constitute populist governments but I would have thought the governments at the present moment of Greece, Poland, Hungary are all populist, I would have thought Modi in India and the BJP is very much a populist party and that's the world's biggest democracy and I would have thought Erdogan in Turkey and I I think that actually one of the problems with the discussion of, of populism is it's been, is the left has treated it as a sort of new pathology in which to attack Brexit or, or Trump or whatever. Actually, populism is much more general as a result of, of the issues and tensions, which I think all the speakers this morning have brilliantly spoken to within democratic societies. Uh,
1: yes, now, I don't describe populism as a, as a pathology. I, and the yeah. left does. Yeah. Um, as I say, I think is an authentic expression of democratic politics. It's something that's built in to our representative systems. I think, uh, Jeremy, I may be guilty of looking too much at Western Europe and the United States for my models of populism. I think, that, you know, that's valid. That I did mention Hungary. Yes. Um, and actually, um, the Hungarian leader is really a, a, quite a good example, I think, mm. of a, of a populist. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the imagery that he he has used is very clearly of a populist character. Um, I'd not thought of the Indian circumstance uh, valid. Um, uh, I was thinking mainly of France, Germany, Italy, a little bit, uh, Great Britain. Uh, As I say, I think the Brexit thing is somewhat overstated. I'd like to hear your opinion of that. Um, We don't typically have referendum in Great Britain. Lacking that referendum, I don't know that we'd be talking about populism in Great Britain um and uh and of course there are, uh, there are reasons why we don't typically have referenda in parliamentary systems precisely for that reason i think in parliamentary systems as opposed to systems where we elect single member executives like a president or a governor populists have a higher hurdle to jump over yes, yes. uh because the difficulty of winning parliamentary majorities is is, is great uh in in those systems compared to the United States where we have primaries and elections for president and so on, where those parties can be captured, much more difficult in parliamentary systems. So yes, I take your point, Jeremy. Thank
3: you. Uh,
0: Phil? I think this exchange just now was very illuminating, at least for me, on on both sides. And it, it actually makes me wonder whether we should get away from the word populism for a minute and just think about structurally how people get elected. And from that perspective, Actually, I can't help thinking there's a lot of continuity, uh, which you mentioned, um, between the, among the last three presidents. Uh, Bill Clinton, I think, started it, and, and this was an echo of Jackson. Um, he, he developed a relationship with individual Americans that cut through party and governmental institutions. He just began it, but there was some of that charisma and that personal connectedness. Uh, Obama took it much further. Obama used to have an office 30 feet from mine, and I just thought he was a failed state senator, but in fact, he was completing a real revolution in how we conduct politics, namely to uh, get individuals just to see their connectedness to him. It was a one-on-one thing. And then Trump just completes the phenomenon just from a different perspective and somewhat perhaps more crudely, but they're all of a sort. And it strikes me that whatever label one wants to give to this, and there are a lot of disparaging labels one could give to it, it is a little worrisome, uh, wherever you stand in the political sphere, because um, it cuts through the very institutions, party, or, um, or, or, or governmental uh, that we've established in a republic. And I, just to complete this thought, I want to get back to Andrew Jackson, uh, who did fa- begin this, you know, well Jefferson before him. But um, there's an interesting diary of a New Englander growing up in in Salem, and he remarks in the evening of the election, he's walking down the street with his father, he's 10 years old, and he hears in the darkness someone shouting, huzzah, huzzah, huzzah for Jackson, and then echoing from the other side of the street, huzzah, huzzah, and he writes 40 years later, he said, I was only 10 years old, um, but I knew then that this was a profound change, uh, because no one in New England would would ever shout huzzah in the street. And suddenly, it was happening, and I I think we're seeing that
1: again. Um, I I think that uh, you know this question as to whether uh, populism uh, is a something uh, uh, exclusive to the right or it occurs on both sides is a uh, a discussion kind of worth having in, in some depth. I mean, I'm, my, I, my point of departure is the United States. So the contemporary state has been built by liberals. Um, they occupy all the major positions, uh, whether it's the universities or government or whatever in journalism. As a, as a consequence of that, uh, that array of power, uh, it, it's somewhat natural in this, this system for the protest to co- arise from the right. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders did not use a lot of populist imagery. He did not talk about, you know, representing the people. He did attack the banks and so on. Um, but that, that campaign seemed to be, uh, me to be uh, more of a, a, an issue type campaign appealing to progressives in the Democratic Party. You know, Trump found new voters mobilise them into the Republican Party, swept the primaries, and so on. So that, that all seemed to me to be quite different. I had a few other thoughts, but maybe they'll, may, they'll occur to me as we go on, Philip. Thank you. Michael. Yeah, uh, just a few thoughts. Uh, just wanted
3: to underline your point about the difference between Western Europe and the US being, I mean, the party structures and the primary system. Uh, the most West European political parties would be very difficult to capture for, uh, for an insurgent candidate because of how they're, the the electoral rules of the parties, so hence populists tend to come from out of the party. Even the Labour Party point where I think you can make a strong argument that Corbyn is the populist. That really only happened because of Labour Labour electoral rules got changed to solve a (coughs) short-term political problem and uh, the MPs didn't properly understand the new electoral rules, so they copped up basically. They didn't understand the rules. So I think that's absolutely true. There's two other points. One is. Whether we can talk about populism in the UK separately from the referendum, and I agree with you, uh, you probably can because I mean, UKIP at the last election got twelve or twelve percent or thirteen percent of the votes, which is pretty much exactly the same as the AFD got in Germany, uh, and I mean, everyone now talks about populism in Germany, but it's, different electoral systems means that the AFD ended up with ninety seats and UKIP ended up with <coughs> one. Uh, the uh, and then the last point really was, I think the one populism you've ever looked at, which is Western Europe, the, West, the most successful West European populist campaign, is I, it's not reassuring to Trump supporters, but it's Berlusconi's election in Italy, where you, I mean, where you had a billionaire outsider, someone who portrayed himself as an outsider. I mean, he was a phony outsider, presenting <laughs> himself as a man who'd reform Italy, and didn't on a right of centre right wing platform, and didn't reform anything in his. Time of tenure, they're not reassuring
1: from an American perspective. Well, uh- I know. Jeremy, have a comment on that? I I, I
2: certainly agree with you about Forza Italia. It didn't make the changes. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I do think that one of the characteristics that of some of the countries we're looking at is party structures that developed in some countries in the late 20th century. One can think of Congress in in India, um, the Labour Party in Israel, uh, the The established party, I can't remember what its name is, was in Japan, Uh, the Christian Democrats and the communists in in Italy, the entire communist system in Eastern Europe, Um, all of these systems became, whatever mandate they supposedly rested on, corrupt. And obviously corrupt to their to much of their public, and in a way, these these political parties fell. Uh, they were dis- they were destroyed. Some of them were completely overcome, um, and uh, some of them were actually closed down. And the Christian Democrats in Italy, as an example, in '94, and the replacements were sometimes from the right, sometimes from the left, but the characteristic feature they all had was to argue, generally correctly, that the existing system was serving a political class. That was exactly the case. Now, the difficulty in the United States is uh, is that while that may be the case in individual municipalities or states, at the federal level, at the level of the whole, gu- of the whole system, it's very difficult to explain the process by which that can occur. You know, you can understand the process with, with, which, 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 through which that occurred in, say, Israel, where Netanyahu and, uh, and his forebears you know, in Likud brilliantly succeeded in discrediting labor and the labor system was corrupt. It's very difficult to see how that process is supposed to occur in the United States.
1: Yeah, I think it would, uh, would have to occur over a sequence of elections mm. uh, as the influence of, a, say, a Trump or whomever filters down into uh, Senate elections, House elections, and you build, you re- uh, reanimate, reorganize, and redefine the parties. I think that that's how it happens in America. Uh, we've only had a couple of circumstances where new parties were formed in America. Uh, Jefferson invented a party, uh, and uh, Lincoln more or less invented a party. But you know we've pretty much been stuck uh, with that structure. One of the things that I wonder is that is all this turmoil emblematic of the fact that the post-war order is winding down and disintegrating? You know, I guess it started with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, a lot of our political structures were kind of built around the Cold War. Uh, So, we're now 70 years on into the post-war order. Uh, More than that now, a lifetime really. Uh, When things are in place for a long time, people tend to think that they're perpetual or natural. But in fact, they're not. So, you know, one question I would ask is whether all these things that are happening uh, across the West represent an effort now to reorganize our politics on somewhat different lines after the great restructuring that occurred in the post-war period.
4: George? This reference, uh, first a couple of minor points. Uh, This reference to Italy reminds me of a joke I heard about Trump last year. It was that the pessimists thought that he would be a a Mussolini and the optimists thought he would be a Berlusconi. On Bernie Sanders, I think I would have to disagree a little bit, Jim. Uh, It seems to me that Bernie Sanders, with his talk of the millionaires and billionaires, was invoking a kind of populist theme. But the difference between the left-wing populists, and this may be true elsewhere, as well as the United States, and the right-wing populists, is that they have different elites that they aim at, as I mentioned in my paper. (coughs) How you define the political class. Is it the class of the administrative state, left-wing types who want to impose political correctness? or is it a class supposedly in Wall Street that is trying to rip off the people and and enrich itself? So that might be a way of trying to make a distinction uh, and and, and recognize the point that Jeremy Black made that there is left-wing populism as well as right-wing populism in the world. My quick question is, I'm interested in your distinction between normal politics and regime politics, and if I understood you correctly, we had regime politics in the 1860s definitely, and, and to some degree in the 30s and 40s. As we enter a period of regime politics, what is the appropriate conservative response? Do we fight that regime politics in those terms with a winner and a loser, even at the risk of considerable disruption, even violence? Or do we take steps, and if so, what steps, toward avoiding the descent of normal politics into regime mm-hmm. politics?
1: A very good question. So, uh, you know, I didn't elaborate very much on this idea of regime politics versus normal politics. Um, and I need to think about that a little bit more. Now, most of the things that we've spoken about today I, I would describe as normal politics. What's the tax policy? Is he going to build a wall? Uh, what are we going to do with health care? Uh, what are we going to do with that treaty with Iran and so on? These are all kind of negotiable issues in politics. And this is the standard kind of thing that, uh, that we engage in in our politics. Uh, it would not be possible to have regime type politics on a continual basis. Typically what happens, and it happens very rarely, is that there is a crisis of the regime that has to be resolved before we can go forward. And typically this is a, a choice has to be made between one of two paths. And it's not possible to accommodate both. And uh, as a consequence of that, those who lose have to go home. Not only do they go home, they're destroyed. And they no longer exist, more or less. So as I say, uh, and the pattern in the United States, I think uh, less than elsewhere, is that when these things happen, uh, they tend to bring about enormous change in relatively compressed periods of time. Sometimes the change is violent, as in the 1860s, uh, less so in the 1930s and 1940s. But we, we create a new elite to run the system on different principles. Uh, and those who lose are, are discredited. So uh, these in the United States have occurred roughly every 70 or 80 years. And we're now 70 plus years into the post-war period, and it's now, I think, unwinding. So George, you asked the question, what would this look like and how can we prevent it from happening? I think I kind of began to sketch out this idea that one of the battles will be between maintaining a traditional nation state uh, and moving to some sort of uh, more of an international state of the kind envisioned by Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama with more open borders, a focus on multiculturalism, Uh, I think one of the judges in the, the, uh, not the immigration case, but the the travel ban case, a couple of them came very close to asserting that people, non-citizens living in Yemen have a uh, a right under the US Constitution to travel to the United States. And that this travel ban violated the rights of people living in Yemen uh, to travel to the United States. He didn't quite say that, but they were getting there. That's kind of their view that uh, the American Constitution protects rights of people all over the world and it's not limited to the citizens and residents of the United States. So uh, I think that is a completely unworkable political system. It would collapse and disintegrate if tried. It would never work. Um, I would also say this, that uh, the left has built up in the West a formidable welfare state with a great deal of popularity i think i believe if they thought about this a little bit more closely they would see that an open immigration regime is going to discredit the welfare state because it's going to open up uh, benefits and rights to uh, uh, rights to benefits under the welfare state to all sorts of people who've not paid for them uh, and i think some of that is happening already in the united states and western europe so I don't have an answer to the question about regime politics. I, I, I do suggest that some of the things we're seeing uh, have aspects of the kinds of things we saw in the 1850s. Um, I'm, uh,
0: Daniel Johnson, then uh, James Pinero. Uh, then I think we'll yield to that not unpleasant sensation of emptiness, which is the silent luncheon gong of the soul.
5: (laughs) Thank you. Um, The more I listen to this discussion about populism, the more I question the usefulness of the concept. Because very often it seems that what we're really talking about is the oldest political skill that there is, which is oratory. I mean, if you go right back to the ancient Greeks, to Demosthenes or the Romans, I mean, watch a performance, a really good performance of Shakespeare's um, Julius Caesar. Um, You see the power of oratory. And very often, what political scientists and pundits and so on like to call populism is simply using a new means of reaching a wider and wider uh, uh, audience uh, and then persuading them. Um, if we, uh, 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 James um, uh, mentioned the 1850s. Um, well, what was distinctive about Abraham Lincoln was that he was a very great orator. It wasn't that he was a populist. Um, about the same time, a few years later, in, in England, William Gladstone uh, had completely unprecedented audiences. Tens of thousands of people. He fought a modern election campaign traveling around the country, the Midlothian campaign. Completely transformed politics. But was he a populist? I mean, you know, this is a great sort of Oxford classicist and, and, and incidentally, a very wealthy Liverpool merchant, too. Um, So, uh, and then if we take it on to the 20th century, I mean, what was distinctive about the 1930s, FDR, It was the fireside chat, it was the ability to use radio to reach the entire nation, which no one had been able to do before, um, for better or worse. Of course, Hitler was very good at this too, but then think of Churchill, uh, you know, uh, from a Ducal family, not exactly a man of the people, uh, but he used radio better than anyone had done before to rally the British uh, in 1940. Um, Was he a populist? Well, he he didn't actually win the election uh, in 1945. He lost it by a landslide. Um, So no, he wasn't a populist. But was he a genius at mobilizing popular uh, sentiment? Yes, of course, Churchill was second to none. Um, And this goes on right up to the present day. What is distinctive about Donald Trump? Well, he's a reality TV star. He understands how to use television in a way that no one has ever done before. And uh, the reason he won the the Republican nomination and I think to some extent also the, the eventual election was that he simply trounced the opposition in those TV debates. He was just streets ahead of them. He understood how to connect to ordinary voters in a way that no one else did. But does that make him a populist or does it just make him a very brilliant orator of a particular kind. I don't know, but uh, I I, I ask the question, what does this concept populism really add to the
2: discussion?
1: Uh, Excellent question, uh, Daniel. Uh, I tried to address it a little bit. I agree, it's very slippery, and it's a term that's used often to discredit people or groups that one side doesn't like. Certainly the left has used that, thrown that term about. Uh, Professor Pocock at the University of Cambridge has uh, used the uh, imagery of the court and country uh, struggle in Great Britain in the 18th century as a kind of a model for these sorts of struggles all the way through the democratic and representative period. Uh, The insiders versus the outsiders. Uh, those trying to manipulate the system from the inside versus those on the outside, and so on. so uh, Jefferson drew on this imagery, Jackson drew on this imagery, others others have as well. So I think uh, uh, one could make the point that this 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 idea of populism is really built into our representative systems and is nothing novel or different. It's expressed in different ways. i I would add this to the whole nationalist debate. I mean, One of the things that we see going on today really come from the left is an effort to discredit the heroic history of these nations, Great Britain and the United States in particular. So uh, in the United States, we look at our history and say it's a heroic history. We came, settled the continent. Uh, We won a revolution. We wrote a constitution. Uh, We then moved ahead and settled the frontier uh, the, then we won these wars in the 20th century. Uh, the, when we expanded our democracy and our welfare state, it's a heroic past. but The left says, no, it's not. It's a history of racism. We despoiled the environment. We oppressed minorities, the Indians, slaves, etc., cetera, et cetera. It's not. There's nothing heroic about the entire enterprise. So uh, this is one of the, uh, the ways in, in uh, which the whole idea of a nation state Uh, tends to be undermined. Can we go forward either in the United States or Great Britain or any place else without a kind of a common history that has some heroic elements? I'm not sure if that's the case. That's one of the things that's being fought against now. I mean, in Great Britain, Churchill drew on all these ideas uh, in in the war uh, to rally the British people. Could that be done today? and a similar circumstance, fortunately a similar circumstance is unlikely to arise. But I think this is this is one of the great questions uh, that Donald Trump has raised in his highly inarticulate way. <laughs> uh, James?
4: Uh, James Pinero, New Criterion. I realize I'm standing between you and lunch, which is a very unpopular position. Um, I'd like to point out that this SAU conference is the first that we are live streaming, so there are actually many more people in the virtual room with us today. And one of them points out uh, that in this discussion of populism, it is in fact Hillary Clinton who won the popular vote. So my question concerns what is the connection between populism and popularity? And this goes also to George's point about uh, Trump's unpopularity ratings. Can we have a broadly popular populism, or does, in fact, populism thrive in a minority position?
1: Yeah, good question. Of course, you know the historically, populist movements have not been popular, quote unquote, to the, in the sense that they rarely uh, win office. I think my de- the definition that I tentatively struggled with was the idea: populist imagery, uh, the people versus the establishment uh... running from outside the the establishments uh... insurgencies uh... so you don't have uh... you don't have endorsements from party leaders you don't have teams of experts you do this more or less on your own uh... focused around a particular leader a protest being more uh, against something than for something with the details not worked out i mean i, I could mention other things but uh, the characteristic of populism is not that it's broadly popular or that it wins, but that it, it has a certain kind of structure in its appeal within a democratic polity.